Hey, everybody. My name is Juan Perez, Organizing Monster. Chris usually says on all the platforms, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. And we have Satomi. Frankie Stars on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, sorry. On Twitter, I'm Torius SAT. And on Instagram, I'm Frankie Stars. <laughs> there you go. And, and this episode is a special episode. Uh, we have two great guests. We have Mary uh, from AFA, right? AFA, AFA CWA, and we have Sarah Nelson. Uh, real quick, if you both can just introduce yourselves, maybe give a little bit of background of who you are, uh, just to get this party started. Go ahead, okay. Mayor. Okay. Hi, Mary Garten. I'm with the Association of Flight Attendants. Um, been a flight attendant for, I'm in my 30th year now, and um been doing union work um, for just over 20 years, right about when I met Sarah. And uh, every time I try to take a step back, <laughs> I'm reeled back in. So uh, there will be no stepping back, right? Um, so I've my background is uh, I've done everything from um, membership engagement, um, uh, with our union to government affairs, um, communications. That's where Sarah and I uh, worked pretty close, very closely together on the same committee at United. And right now I'm chairing our political legislative policy committee for, for our entire union and helping to coordinate our political work. So that is a little bit about me, Sarah. <laughs> And um, Mary is senior to me on the line, um, but I am president of our union, the Association of Flight Attendants, so coming out of United, uh, but representing flight attendants at 19 different airlines, almost 55,000 flight attendants, and, uh, and organizing to double our size. <laughs> so um, that's it. I, I came up uh, doing a lot of the things that Mary did, working in communications, um, but I did it all, um, going to grievance training, occupational benefits, and learning every corner of our union, um, and government affairs, and um, learning all of it. And then, uh, very early on, uh, being elected our national strike chair in 2000 when we were opposing a merger, and um, then becoming communications chair for a long time and through our bankruptcy, uh, and almost becoming a... a uh, a lawyer during that time. <laughs> so I was so close to everything. Um, but then people asked me to run for national office and I was our international vice president uh, in uh, 2011 to 2014 when I was elected president of our union in 2014. So almost 10 years now. That is so awesome. Both of you, like the history, like the work that you all have done and the amount of time that you spent organizing. So, and I, w I would like to know, I'm just really curious because, you know, you gave us a little bit, both gave us a little bit about, you know, a little bit about your origin story, but I really, I think we really want to know, inquiring minds want to know, like what motivated you to actually get involved? Um, what was the trigger that said, oh, I'm going to start getting active. Like, this is not okay. Well, amazingly enough, um, we often say that the companies are the best organizers, and that's certainly the truth for me. So when I first started flying, uh, I had come uh, from college. Uh, my, my best friend in college had become a flight attendant. We kind of laughed about it. 
Um, but she called me after I'd finished my student teaching uh, in the fall after we graduated, and she had been flying for about four or five months. It was a very snowy day uh, in February in St. Louis when I was working four jobs. I was waiting tables, and which everyone in America should have to do for a little while, by the way. Um, and I was also working at a home store so I could get a discount for furnishing my apartment mm -hmm. with, um, three other people that I shared it with and, um, and also, uh, working at a temp agency filing for, uh, a healthcare, um, or a, an insurance company, healthcare insurance company, uh, and seeing firsthand deny, 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 deny. And people had to be very, um, uh, had to be very persistent with getting their healthcare benefits. Um, and then also doing some, uh, substitute teaching. And my, my friend called me from Miami beach on one of these days when I had not really slept because I was working so much and my student loan repayment was about to start. And I was thinking about starting my first year, uh, teacher pay at a high school in inner city, St. Louis, and trying to think about how I was going to have enough dollars left over to try to fix up my classroom so that kids could actually have a good learning environment because uh, teachers were not uh, given the tools to do that. And uh, she called me from Miami Beach with her toes in the sand and kind of razzed me about the fact that I was in the snow. And I was like, great, thanks. And but then she got serious. And she said, actually, Sarah, this job is no joke. And she went on to describe the pay, uh, the flexibility, the health care that also was um, focused on health care that was important for women uh, because there had been women at the table negotiating that health care and also the pension. And believe it or not, at age 23, uh, hearing that I could get a pension at age 50 and retire from a company and then maybe go do something else sounded really, really good um, because I was already so tired <laughs> from working so much. So I got in my car the next day, drove to Chicago, uh, interviewed with United Airlines, and it wasn't long before I was in training and then they sent me to Boston, which is one of the most expensive cities to live in, much like many of our hubs for uh, airline employees. And I was out uh, working uh, probably about three weeks. And my roommates, I, I got an apartment with us. And there were seven, seven of us in an apartment in Boston so that we could afford that near the airport. And um, I, they all got their paychecks. And I called up and I still had just $12 in my bank account. And I often say that, sure, I could have maybe called mom and dad for help, but they were really mad that uh, after getting my uh, liberal arts education at this expensive school that I had become a flight attendant, they were mad until they got the flight benefits six months later. And, um, and so I, I didn't have anyone to ask for help. And I, I was praying for reserve assignments because the office told me, oh, we're not sure why you didn't get your first paycheck, but we're sure you'll get it next time. And people had told me, mind your P's and Q's while you're on probation. So uh, I tried to make it work and got real familiar with Top Ramen uh, and praying for those uh, assignments that uh, they would call and send me on so I could eat some plain food. Um, I often say, too, maybe a couple dates in between there. So, um, you know, thanks for the steak and lobster those nights, guys. See you later. Um, and then, um, made it to the next payday and I, the day before, and I, I often talk about this solidarity too. I was coming off of a reserve assignment back into Boston and the van drivers who would take the hotel van drivers who would take the flight attendants to their layover hotel. I had worked with some flight attendants who were based outside of Boston. Um, then they would take them to the hotel and then drive the local flight attendants home. 
And that's working class solidarity at work too. Um, but so this van driver drove me home and I was the last stop and because it was customary to give him a dollar when you're getting off the van for, uh, getting your bag. And I reached in my pocket and I was literally down to one quarter and I gave it to him. And I remember saying, it's literally the last quarter I have. I'm so sorry. And he just looked at me like, sure. Nice story. Um, I was mortified, went into the apartment. Nobody else was home. There was no food in the cupboard. So while I was waiting for the paycheck to drop the next day, I used my T-pass, uh, my train pass to get to the airport that was in my union contract. That's the only reason I had it. And I jumped to Chicago and back so I could eat some more plain food. Back in Boston by around noon, checked my bank account, and it was a zero dollar balance. So I went down into the office and now I'm feeling quite desperate and rent is due the next day. And I know that my roommates are counting on me for my portion of the rent. And uh, I said, I didn't get my first paycheck again. And the person behind the desk started to give some of the same answer. Well, you get your first paycheck different times for different. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you're, like, you're not, you don't understand. You're not hearing me. This isn't right. And suddenly uh, I realized what it was to be a number in an HR file. Um, and not matter. And um, I started to feel really pretty desperate. And and the tears started to roll. And I think my voice got a little more high-pitched and angry. And um, I remember feeling very angry. Uh, and I had this tap on the shoulder and turned around. And there's someone standing there who looks a lot like me. Uh, I'd never seen her before. But she was holding her checkbook. And she just asked me how to spell my name. She handed me a check for $800 and she said, number one, you take care of yourself. And number two, you call our union. I did call our union and I had my paycheck the next day. But that's really what jumpstarted me um, on getting involved because I realized that through our union, we could do something that I could never do alone. And in our union, we could be organized about the care that we have for each other and get the most out of it. So the local also called me and asked me to get involved after that. Um, and uh, I was so honored that they called me. I didn't know that people said no. <laughs> I, I said, okay, I'll get involved. And uh, I signed up to do the new hire presentation so that it, this didn't happen to anybody else. And, um, and, short, and that led to the next thing and the next thing, getting on the communications committee and then uh, actually running for office and becoming a council rep. And right around that time, we negotiated uh, our first contract in my career. And I thought the contract stunk. And I, I um, actually worked really hard for a no vote. Um, and the contract just barely passed. And I remember going to the union meeting right after that. And people are throwing down their union pins. They're angry because I actually am a pretty good organizer. We organized an 80% vote against, but Boston was a small base. And um, uh, so people were mad. And I thought about giving up too. But then I, what flashed in front of my eyes was that flight attendant who wrote me that check. And I thought about all the other people that I had met on the jump seat and across the cart from me, up in the air. And those metal tubes where all we can count on is each other. And they were incredible people. And I thought, we can do more with this. And what I learned was that the women who formed our union had created an incredibly democratic union. Or if you want to get involved, you can. Um, and I happen to be the youngest serving international president of our union that has only ever uh, been run by women. Um, and so that, that was the jump start for me. 
Um, but what supercharged it was um, being in that small base five years later and uh, serving as national strike chair at the time. Uh, when on September 11th, my flight that I worked very often, flight 175, um, United Airlines, it's the flight that you can imagine crashing into the South Tower of the World Trade Center because American Airlines had crashed into the North Tower 17 minutes earlier. And so every camera is trained on that spot. And that was my friends on that flight. Um, that was two Amy's and Michael, Robert, Catherine, Alicia, Al, and two passenger service agents, Marianne and Jesus. And uh, while we were grieving and trying to pick up the pieces of our lives and then facing immediate furloughs of half of our base, because we were pretty junior um, after that, there were crisis capitalists who were planning to redefine our careers and break that contract that made me drive to Chicago overnight and get involved. And um, they, we went on a ride in bankruptcy, and I learned exactly what it means to have to fight uh, for everything, fight every single day and take them on every single day, even with all the odds against you. And it was really that time um, fighting for extended unemployment benefits in Congress, fighting uh, for mental health uh, benefits for flight attendants and to be designated with uh, PTSD so we could get that mental health coverage and sitting in our crisis room and taking calls, suicide calls from people and having a company tell us we had to dig in and get back on the job because the company was hemorrhaging money. And then redefining our careers in, the, in those bankruptcies. And um, it was in the middle of that that I realized that this was my calling and what I was going to do for the rest of my life and how the jack was sticked against us in capitalism and how we could only fight it by fighting together. Yeah, no, that, wow. Oh my great. God. Was, uh, <laughs> I'm not following that. <laughs> it's, it's okay. I'll throw this in. Uh, I like, I like your book that you have back there, Sarah. I, I have the shirt. Um, Fight like yeah. like you said, we gotta keep fighting. So that's a really good uh really good book you have back there. We actually had um Kim Kelly. Kim Kelly here in San Diego. Yeah. And she did uh, <laughs> a panel. Uh we took a we took a picture. Um and she'll be on the podcast eventually. But yeah, I ordered the shirt and it's so badass. But yeah, that story, it's like wow, that I think that's a good calling for for to be involved. Like you like you're so determined, you're so in it, and you're still in it. I mean, I just got into labor five years ago, six years ago, maybe at this time, and I'm learning as I go. Uh, I didn't have a story like that, but I think it's important for everybody to finally reach that point where you're like, Okay, I've had enough of these corporations or whatever. It's time to band together with my coworkers and fight for something. You mentioned that the the companies are the best organizers. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I agree with that because because I I tell these guys I'm like if a company is taking care of you, if you're making decent money and they respect you, good paychecks and healthcare benefits, then it's really hard to organize them. I'm a union organizer here in San Diego with IATSE. Uh, local 122 but the company is always exploiting their workers and underpaying them and and pizza parties and all that good stuff it makes it a little, a little bit easier to organize them but can you elaborate a little bit more on that and and if you want to jump in there too mary um i think that's a really good um thing that you just said companies are the best organizers <laughs> well I, I i think i do i do want to let mary be able to jump in here too but uh you know they they certainly, they screwed up with me. 
And they typically will, because um, at the end of the day, the companies think of us as a line item um, on, on costs and how many bodies they have to have, how much productivity they can eke out of us. And, um, and it doesn't matter. I mean, the idea that you can discipline people for using sick leave, for example, is a despicable thing. Um, but it's allowed in, in most places in this country. And um, so they, they're, they're, the companies will, uh, at the end of the day, treat people horribly, even if they have a very, um, very advanced and uh, mature union busting campaign like Delta Airlines, frankly, um, they, they will screw up uh, because at the end of the day, their, their heart's not in it. The, and the companies don't have hearts and there's no hearts in capitalism. Capitalism is all about profits. It's not about the people. And so um, the, it, they will screw up and uh, they, will, they will encourage people to uh, fight back and need to, need to change things in their lives because they're not being treated fairly. And people are finally, you know, like Juan is saying, beginning to stand up and seeing that. Um, you actually predicted a revolution of... Um, a, a revolution of American labor, like it, what in 2019 or 2020, a few years ago. And then over the past couple of years, we have seen the revitalization of the American labor movement. It's been a beautiful thing. Um, so you were talking about currently organizing and, you know, we, so a lot of folks have different understanding of labor. And so as flight attendants um, working for the, like in, under federal jurisdiction. Can you talk a little bit more about like what, cause it's interesting. Cause I was actually talking to Mary about this earlier and that the contract never expires, that it's like constantly open and that this battle for a contract of particularly with United, but also with a, a number of other airlines currently, it has just been open pretty much open-ended. Can you talk to us about maybe the, like what's the railway being regulated by the Railway Labor Act? How is that different mm -hmm. from like other public sec, like other like public sector or private sector um, entities or industries that aren't re sure. regulated by RLA? Yeah, the Railway Labor Act is the oldest labor law in the country and it came on the heels of um, many railroad strikes and people wanted to have uh, stability. The railroad companies essentially wanted to have stability, uh, and, and so did Congress. <laughs> and so uh, they put in place the Railway Labor Act, but it, it, is mostly, um, it, it is mostly about encouraging continued service. The airlines were added later uh, when the act was amended in 1936. And um, so contracts do not expire, they become amendable. Now I have to say, that there's a few times that that's a benefit to workers because if we're in an economic downturn and trying to negotiate during that time, our contracts remain in full force. But usually what this means is it accrues a benefit uh, to the corporations. And when we used to have negotiations uh, for contracts that were two years in length and the contract negotiations would, would run no longer than a year, at a certain point, the organizing and, and Mother Jones predicted this over 100 years ago when she said the capitalists say there is no need of labor organizing except the fact that they themselves are continually organizing shows us their real beliefs. And that that's the case here. Uh, these uh, airlines and railroads got together and realized that under this act, they could actually drag things out and delay. I also talk about the four D's of union busting, divide, delay, distract, which is all intended to lead to the final one, demoralize. 
And uh, so if you can delay improvements, people get tired of fighting. And you can also delay uh, what you're supposed to be paying people or the improvements around their lifestyles that we're negotiating. And that's certainly what the airlines have learned. And they believe that there's not a credible strike threat. There is a very fulsome right to strike under the Railway Labor Act, but the federal government has to release you uh, from negotiations. There has to be a determination that there's an impasse in negotiations uh, that the federal government is mediating, and then uh, a release to a 30-day cooling off period that then sets the strike deadline. And it has been um, a long time since we've seen a release. In the past 20 years, uh, the only airline release has been the Spirit Airlines pilots in 2010. And so we have not been able to use the full threat of a strike. Uh, and we intend to use that uh, this coming year uh, because negotiations are happening across the industry, American Airlines, United Airlines, Alaska, Southwest flight attendants just voted down uh, their tentative agreement that included a 20% raise. It's not enough. We've been waiting for far too long. It's been 20 years of scarcity since 9-11. And it has been you know, more and more productivity into the pockets of the airlines. And so this, this round after COVID is the time for us to push forward. And we're going to need massive gains, just like they fought for at UPS and uh, with the uh, auto workers. Uh, very similar, very similar demands. And it's actually shaping up to look like a very similar negotiations environment with all of the major airlines that are organized um, competing against each other to the highest levels. That's what, that's what we're setting up here and what we're going to press forward on and what we're going to press the Biden administration on as we go into the new year about that right to strike so that we can call the question on these airlines and get the contracts that flight attendants are demanding and expect and are due. Yes, 100%. Now, this is not the first time you talked about a coordinated effort for, you know, uniting workers around a strike. Um, and actually, uh, and it, so you're credited with ending the, the, the government shutdown in 2019 because of your call. And a lot of folks call you radical for this. We, we personally call you amazing and awesome for calling for a general strike. Um, I'm okay with radical. We need a little radical. Things are effed up here. Yeah, so yeah. so you called for a general strike in 2019, and that basically shut down the shutdown. It scared the shit out of everybody. Excuse me, am I allowed to swear on you? You can cuss, yeah. <laughs> and it scared the shit out of everybody. So... So talk to us, what was your, like, what was going through your head when you were like, go, you know, thinking about like, oh man, like, all, you know, this is coming to a head, like TSA agents have been calling out, like we're yeah. like more and more people are, you know, just not showing up for work. The conditions are just becoming a more, uh, you know, it, talk to us. Well, I mean, so we can't do our jobs without the federal sector doing theirs and um, ever since Ronald Reagan talking about the government being the problem, not the solution, there has been an attack on the federal workforce, um, on our federal budgets, um, on the, um, the support that we need in order to keep safe systems. And in aviation, you know, we, we, count on, we count on a lot of divisions of government to be able to do our job. We count on the air traffic controllers. Um, they have to be 100% right all the time in order for us to be safe at work. We count on those TSA uh, officers in the airports, but we count on all the people who are doing the work behind that. The cybersecurity at DHS um, that gives them uh, good intelligence. Uh, the FBI agents were on furlough too. None of the support staff during that, that government shutdown 
were there. They were determined non-essential and sent away. And it was essentially the people that you saw um, on the front lines doing the work without all that backup and not getting paychecks. So every time there is a government shutdown, we're very concerned about it. We're probably more attuned to it than most people in the country because we know um, what, uh, how that affects our safety and security. And we also know that these government shutdowns had been uh, very frequent in the last, especially 20 years, um, and extensions to authorization bills like the FAA reauthorization bill that is so critical for setting the priorities of the national transportation system um, with hiring plans, training plans, but also physical infrastructure. And there had been so many uh, extensions that just keep the status quo, but status quo means that there's attrition, people leaving. It means that every time you go up to those funding deadlines, people are stopping the work they're doing on improving conditions and they're actually putting together a shutdown plan because once that shutdown happens, the people who are determined non-essential are on furlough and can't be there to do any of that work. And the people who are determined essential are going to work, work in a much harder condition and not getting a paycheck. So this, this, is, um, this is actually in play right now. We are demanding that this government pass an FAA bill because many people are very aware of all of the disruptions, the operational disruptions in aviation. That is the product of 20 years of Congress not doing their work. So right now, we're feeling the effects of that. But in 2019, uh, 2018, 2019, when this happened, Trump was also in the White House. And I say his name, I'm, that's the last time I'm going to say his name on this podcast. Uh, I refuse to say his name during this entire fight. Um, but there was an attempt during that shutdown, it became very, very clear that supposedly this was over a so southern border wall, um, that the, the fight was over in Congress. But really what it was, was a, a shutdown that was going on twice as long as any other shutdown in the past. And it was, it was about accruing uh, more power to the executive to be, e to be able to fire air traffic controllers, to privatize everything, to privatize security functions. If it didn't work, well, the three things could have happened. We could have had a, a terrorist attack. We could have had a major airline accident. In both of those cases, when a major crisis happens, that accrues a ton of power to the executive who can say, don't worry, I'll fix it and make all the changes that the GOP has been trying to make for years and unraveling our federal system and all of the workers who work in, in uh, our federal government uh, to help keep us safe. Um, so, or if nothing happened, they would say, see, it's a bunch of bureaucracy and we don't need it. And so that's what was really going on. There was no political solution here. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell couldn't com come to terms because this, it wasn't about a political solution. It wasn't about compromise. It was about trying to tear everything down. And a lot of people were saying this thing would end if the air traffic controllers would just walk off the job. Well, that's no way to practice solidarity. They were essentially already in a lockout, except it's an even worse lockout because they were forced to come to work. If they didn't come to work, they were potentially facing jail time because that's what Ronald Reagan had done. Yeah. Um, so it was our time to come uh, to their rescue. And um, we had 800,000 workers who were going without a paycheck. We had another million contractors who do work uh, for the federal government who had no expectations that they were going to be able to recover any of that, just summarily out of work uh, for 35 days at this point. 
And as I was fighting this and trying to raise the alarm about the very serious safety and security concerns, I was doing this in a cab uh, from one government building to or, or uh, somebody's offices to my office. And and the cab driver turned around when I went to hand him the cash and he grabbed my hand and he had a tear come down his cheek and he said, thank you, you're fighting for me too. And that's just it. When people can't go to work, when they can't do their jobs, it doesn't just affect the people right there. It affects all the people who count on that work that happens all around them. All the restaurant workers in D.C. who were not able to make a living during that time because nobody was here going to those restaurants, it hurt the entire community. And that happened throughout the country. And so it was time for the labor movement to do something about it. Our union was getting prepared to strike because we were not going to go to work under unsafe conditions. And we were getting very close to determining that that net had been stretched too far and we were going to have to strike. And I remember, I remember Bernie Sanders calling me and saying, Sarah, but what about the pilots? And I said, Bernie, it's okay. Planes don't take off without pilots, but they don't take off without flight attendants staffing them either. We can do this on our own. And um, we could have. But I called upon the entire labor movement to say this is the moment to say enough is enough. Um, we this, this affects all of us, and we can stop it. Politics is not going to work it, but labor has all the power, and we need to exercise it now. Go back to your locals and your internationals and talk about a general strike. And so setting that tone when then there were air traffic controllers who physically couldn't do their jobs anymore. And just 10 of them uh, signed in and said that they, they didn't feel um, that they could go to work and medically be able to do their jobs. Flights started to cancel in LaGuardia and it, it was as if there were a few raindrops falling in a normal aviation day. But we had defined it as worker power. And the GOP came to the table in two hours and did a deal. After we put out a press release that said, Mitch McConnell, can you hear us now? And because we had defined this as a moment for worker power, they didn't want workers all over this country to get a taste of that power. They knew everything would change. And a deal was done in two hours. Wow. Interesting. Wait, so you and Bernie are like talking? Uh, you have each other's numbers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, for sure. Wow. First, first name basis. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, speaking, <laughs> speaking of actions and... I was a delegate for him a couple of times. Um, speaking of collective power, Mary, I want to bring you in here. I know you all are going to have actions across across the states, right? Uh, right. At the airports. Uh, right. Do you want to talk about that real quick? What are what are some of the challenges that our workers are facing in today's um, with you all and in the and in, in, in the labor landscape? Like, what? Why are you guys out doing all these actions uh, at the airports? What are some of the challenges you guys face? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, the United Group and the Alaska Group have, both have informational picketing coming up um, at uh, system wide, so um, all over the U.S. Uh, United on December fourteenth uh, tomorrow, and Alaska on the nineteenth, and we're both in uh, deadlocked, unproductive uh, contract negotiations that have gone on for years. Um, we, we have both, uh, filed for mediation. I believe Alaska is waiting for a mediator to be assigned, but maybe that happened since I, Sarah would know better. Um, they've got a mediator, Mary. They got a mediator. Okay. Yeah. Um, and United last I heard, they were waiting to hear back. Also has a mediator. Okay. <laughs> so look, look, we're moving fast. Um, 
So we're, we're both fed up. Um, we're both uh, working under these contracts that have become amendable with um, without a raise in years or any sort of improvement in our work rules and our retirement security uh, in our health care. And uh, we carried them through COVID. Uh, we we continued to show up to work and keep those flights moving and put put ourselves and our families in in um, in danger. You know, going out there and and being exposed to uh, COVID on a daily basis. And it's time to settle these contracts and pay up, essentially. Right. So. Uh a quick follow-up to that, the Railway Labor Act to tie this in. Um, so last year, the railway uh, workers were about to go on strike, and then the Congress stepped in and kind of mediated the situation, right? So um, I went to Labor Notes early this year here in, in L.A., and there was a cool panel. Amazon was there. Uh, uh, UPS was there, representatives and staff. And, and somebody from the railway um, unions was there. And then, like, before this meeting, I was like, fuck Biden. He stepped in and crushed the strike. I'm so, like, over him kind of deal. Um, and then he then he presented. I forgot what his name was. I got his contact info. Uh, <laughs> Um, but he talked about what was happening with the railway workers. He's like, forget Biden. Don't even worry about Congress right now. Don't even worry about Biden. This is what happened with the railway workers. And he broke it down. There's 12 unions in the railway system and this and that. There needs to be solidarity between these unions. None of them have solidarity at this point. So for them to go on strike, there needs to be solidarity across the board. Otherwise, these guys already settled their deal, but these guys are not about to settle the deal. Are, so that's so that's what happened, right? Like they just settled the deal at the end of the day. There was no strike. Are we in the same position with with you all? Because you all fall under the Railway Labor Act. Like, are your is your strike credible at this point, or is the same situation going to happen like last year uh, with the railway workers? There's a lot of nuances between the airlines and the railroad workers, and actually, one of those nuances is that very typically. Um, because of the way that the negotiations have been set up under rail, um, it'll often go to a presidential emergency board, which is um, uh, an arbitrator will hear both groups' um, arguments and um, then present uh, a, a proposed contract for people to vote on. And you're right. Some of the unions had ratified that already. Some had not. So it was split. Um, in, in our case, it's, it's a little different. So uh, PEVs, they call them are um, extremely irregular um, in, with the airlines. Um, and we negotiate national contracts because we're under the uh, federal law and it's by craft. So um, we don't have national negotiations that are with other crafts um, in those negotiations. It's by, it's by the specific carrier, the airline and the craft. Um, we are setting this up to have a credible strike threat. The American Airlines flight attendants have already taken their strike vote. Um, they turned out, flight attendants turned out a 99.5% strike vote. Uh, the Delta pilots uh, last year voted 99%. Uh, so I just want to say the flight attendants like did a little bit better than the pilots. Um, but that, that vote at Delta with the pilots is what led to a deal there. And we're going to see some more strike votes. Um, I, you know, I think those haven't been taken yet at Alaska United and uh, Southwest. Um, stand by for news. Um, but we can we can bring these negotiations to a head 
and expect that the that our rights are going to be upheld. And I think that that's one thing that the public should know and the rest of labor should know uh, is that we we have to get out on the picket line. We have to get to the point in negotiations where we're calling for that. But when it's time for us to say that we should be able to exercise our right to strike, we need everybody saying, hell yes, and that being public opinion, because what that's going to do is to bring these negotiations to a head and actually get deals. I don't believe any one of these airlines are willing to take on a strike right now. I don't think that this management um, has the stomach for it. In the past, we have had management that um, actually wanted workers to go on strike so that they could permanently replace them. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that's not the kind of conditions we're in, and that's not the kind of uh, people in charge of the airlines right now. I'm not going to give them a lot of credit, but at least I know that they want to run airlines. And in the past, um, uh, we've had people who would be willing to sell us for parts. Um, so we're going to hold their feet to the fire and demand um, what we're expecting. And I expect that those strike threats are going to come to a head in the very early in the new year. Everybody watch for that. And I can announce right now um, that all flight attendants across the industry are going to be picketing on February 13th. So uh, any airport new you, you should be able to come out and protest with us. And things should be really hot at that point. Um, So uh, come on out and take part. You heard that first union or bus podcast. (laughs) Breaking news. Yes. Breaking news Um, on union or bus. Yes. There you go. Speaking of solidarity and being able to show support. So we actually had we crowdsourced some questions and we had a question from Evangelina Hernandez. Um, She used to work at the Labor Council. She currently works for the AFL-CIO, but she um, wanted to know um, what specifically uh, um, can folks do to help support the Delta organizing drive? Because we definitely want to encourage more folks to get into unions. Um, And so any support we can offer these workers, especially during this critical time, especially because it it can be very scary if you have a boss uh, boss fight happening. Right. Uh, If the boss is waging a war on the workers by having, you know, captive audience meetings or doing all kinds of things that bad employers like to do. Right. Yeah. So what can we do? John Q. Public, Jane Q. Public, non-denominational or non (laughs) non non-binary um, public folks do to support? So there, there's three things that you can do. Um, and uh, the first is simply lift up our communications about Delta, or I'm going to also say SkyWest. It's the largest re- regional carrier. We have uh, a great campaign going on there too. And SkyWest does flying for United American, Alaska, and Delta. Um, and then the Delta campaign, you can find more at deltaafa.org. Sign up to be a public supporter. Um, with that, we will also ask you, do you fly Delta? We'll send you a flyers kit that comes with uh, these buttons, stickers, and also business cards where you can write your name on it saying that you are a proud union member or a proud union supporter with a QR code that then um, if, if the flight attendant doesn't know about the campaign or isn't hooked into the campaign, you can just tell them use the QR code uh, to get information and get an organizer to call you back. There's 28,000 
Delta flight attendants. And we don't have contact information for over 10,000. Um, 32% of that 28,000 have been hired since 2021. So Delta is definitely trying to pad the list here. They're also asking for people to take leaves. So um, they, they, there's not enough flying to go around. They're clearly doing this in response to our campaign. They clearly also try to keep the pay rates um, at the top or competitive with the rest of the industry. But um, in, in order to say that they're a good employer, Everybody thinks it's a great place to work at Delta, but that's because it's only the company's voice that's ever out there. Um, so you can sign up to be a supporter. We also would say that because we don't have contact information, whenever I go anywhere, I ask people to raise their hands if they know a Delta flight attendant. And I bet there's people listening right now who know a Delta flight attendant. Help us get in contact with them and also share your story about why you're a union supporter. Um, you can actually, you're actually gonna be the most successful in organizing them and um, getting them involved in the campaign. And then finally, if you are a young person wondering what to do with your life, um, why don't you go apply to be a flight attendant? You can uh, apply and go work uh, where there's a union contract, or you can get into the largest uh, single unit private sector organizing drive in the country and make history this next year. Um, so these are ways that you can support. Um, and, and, and finally, uh, you can find me at Flying with Sarah uh, on Twitter or Instagram or all the socials. And uh, pinned at the top of my page is actually an action uh, supporting the SkyWest flight attendants because we've had a couple of union organizers who have been fired by the company, um, illegally fired. We've got a federal court case going on, but we don't have any ULPs. We don't have immediate recourse under the RLA. Uh, so we need to put public pressure there. Um, so lift up what we're doing, uh, give that, give the campaign that visibility, spread the word that we want people flying Delta Airlines, getting your supporter packet, talking with the flight attendants in that space, because what Delta has tried to do is to say that saying the word union is bad and you're going to get fired if you even say the word union. So the more people that we have customers on Delta Airlines passengers saying the word union, the safer you're making it for Delta flight attendants to organize their union uh, and join us. Right, right. I, th I think that's awesome getting everybody involved in your campaign. It's not just your fight. It's everybody's fight. Kind of like, uh, I don't know if you know who Union Drip is on Twitter. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm sure. You, yeah, of course. I, I, <laughs> when I saw when I saw him in LA at the convention, the Democratic convention in uh, I already forgot when May or March or something. Uh, yeah. I was all I was all like a high school like a high school kid got when I got his number and I took a picture with them anyways. Um, so I had him on the podcast too, and we talked about campaigns and he talked about how the way that they were doing it is we, they wanted to feel the UPS, uh, action or the UPS campaign. They wanted to make the public feel like they're a part of the campaign. Yeah. They, everybody should feel like when they're watching Twitter or YouTube videos or whatever, they're, everybody's a part of all of these campaigns because one fight is everybody's fight kind of deal. So I, I think that's a good idea. It's like getting people to have QR codes and get their gear on. Even yeah. if they're not in the industry, even if they're, they don't work for the company, it's still our fight. It's everybody's fight. And I think- Absolutely, absolutely. Let me just let me just give you a couple more reasons to do this. This is very much like, uh, what UAW is doing now. Yeah. They're, they're out there organizing the non-union um, uh, car companies that are building cars here in the U.S. and uh, don't have the same pay and benefits and then compete with the big three where they just got these contracts. Well, Delta always undercuts us. They make twice as much as any other airline. 
Wow. We should be setting the standards with the contract at Delta. And so not having Delta organized is undercutting the rest of the flight attendant contracts. And it's undercutting the value for workers everywhere, because every time we can get a better contract for workers anywhere, the bar is raised for workers everywhere. So um, this is this is critically important. It's also, you know, it's it's a it's a moral imperative because Delta is also based in the South. And they decided in the 1940s that they were going to be anti-union. And when all the organizing happened in the 1940s in the airline industry, Delta kept the unions out, uh, with the exception of the pilots and the controllers. Uh, they're the least organized, and they and they make all those profits off the workers' backs. And so fighting Delta is fighting corporate greed. And if you think that it's time to fight corporate greed, then sign up to be a Delta AFA supporter. Sign up to support the machinists who are uh, organizing the ramp and the Teamsters who are organizing the mechanics. And we also have a coalition to organize 50,000 workers at Delta together. It's called Organize and Fly Together. Um, so come be a part of it. That's amazing. Organize, organize, organize. That's the only way we're going to grow. That's the only way we're going to change and shift um, the status quo. And, you know, a few times you've mentioned capitalism, capitalism, capitalism. And, you know, last month, you were testifying before the Senate, a Senate with um, Sean Sean Fain. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about what what you were and doing. Sean O'Brien and Sean O'Brien. My bad, Sean. My bad. They're spelled different, but they're both Sean. Yeah. <laughs> with the Sean's, Sean's times two. It was so. Tell us what what was the purpose? What were you doing testifying before the Senate about capitalism? Well, we got to testify in the Senate Help Committee, um, who uh, and the chairman is one of our favorite people, Senator Sanders. Um, and so he called the three of us to testify about um, what labor unions are doing for uh, to lift up the American dream um, and uh, some of the big wins and some of the big challenges that we're facing. And so we were we were there talking about the wins uh, for UAW and the Teamsters at UPS and the organizing drives that we have to do and also talking about our uh, bargaining uh, in the airlines. And um, the one thing that I think is really important, one of the themes of the hearing was a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think it's it's pretty important that we start re to recognize that the boats are becoming yachts and there's fewer and fewer of them. But the boats are a distraction. Don't focus on the boats. We're the tide. So we need to welcome every single worker into the tide and take control. Those boats are nothing without all of us. Well, yeah, like the the freaking uh, the whales are flipping the boats, the yachts. That's right. right. Like the, the orcas. That's right. You haven't seen that? That's solidarity. Solidarity. That's right. That's solidarity from those whales. That's yeah. right. And and it's going to be the workers. Listen, you know, if, if we're going to change anything, if we're going to take on the big existential threats that we face, um, we're, we're going to have to organize. And we have to understand that social justice is directly tied to economic justice. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, that's that's not about anything other than dividing the working class. It's about making women worthless have less, less of a voice, being able to control them. It brings new meaning to rape. We need to call this out for what it is. It's a union busting tactic, pure and simple. And it is um, making people um, be, be beholden to a system that keeps them in poverty. Um, and it's the people who are in poverty who are gonna be hurt by it. Um, so we need to understand that every social justice issue 
is directly tied to building power and solidarity. And that is why they're going to try to keep us focused on those social issues to divide us um, rather than giving people the space and the empowerment to organize themselves, stand up for themselves, believe that they can do better. And I was out on the UAW picket line and it was extraordinary um, with Sean Fain. And it was extraordinary to see workers walk up to him who suddenly were feeling their power and recognizing for the first time in their lives that they could do something about the conditions that they were facing. And that changed everything, that hope. Um, and this is before they even got those deals done. People were saying that this had already changed their lives. And it's true. And so um, anyway, that was a lot of the message that we gave uh, at the Senate hearing. And uh, why, why it's up to us uh, to organize so that we can take on climate change with a just transition. And so that we can make this a space where everyone is welcome and so that we can recognize that the immigrants in our, in our country are the ones who originally formed their, their unions and, and made the American dream possible. And these are the people who are being exploited right now. Um, these are the people who are doing the hardest work in our country, things like covering, uh, like recovering cities after major disasters. They're the ones who are doing the demolition in extremely uh, dangerous conditions. But if they didn't do it, those cities and those communities would lose billions more. So in some ways, it's the work that should be paid the most. And uh, so we we just, um, we, we've got to come together and understand the old labor adage of an injury to one is an injury to all. Because if the boss can exploit any one of us, they're gonna find, a, I, I almost said, I said they, but you know, he's gonna find a way to exploit all of us. Yeah. And um, so uh, this, this is a time to recognize that we've gotta make sure that everyone can find their power, everyone can find their hope. And it just takes a little fight to get that done. And this, I, I wanna just, point how amazing this is because we are seeing the resurgence not only of the American labor movement but a resurgence of the past practice of not just being focused on bread and butter issues that we are about this that we are labor is the vehicle is a transformative vehicle to shift our entire like society and that um, social justice unionism is actually what's going to build our movement grow our movement and save our country save our world um, and you know, along and call for peace and yes, wars. Yes, a hundred percent, especially when they're yes, a hundred percent. So, you know, speaking of this, calling for peace, calling for wars, solidarity. Um, we so last month was it last month? Uh, was a couple last show with, anyways. So, <laughs> Kabong Elmer, yeah. um, oh, I know Kabong, yeah, yeah. Yes. Kabong was actually a guest on this uh, podcast. Um, talking, you know, he he was on a tour of the U uh, United States to talk about solidarity in the Philippines because the lab the uh, the labor movement in the Philippines is under attack, but um you and CWA have actually taken a position on on the solidarity in the Philippines because it's really interesting because we see a lot of work being taken from taken from the United States to um, other countries, especially like CWA represents call centers for like AT&T. They've been going up and moving across the, the, the world, essentially. So can you talk a little bit about the solidarity part? Like wh what what brought you all to the position of like, damn, like we support this, even though like we have jo there's jobs going, you know, shifting. Tell us about that. Let's be really clear. We we 
we, there's a recognition that we have to fight for workers everywhere in the world. Um, multinational corporations are trying to take control and trying to exploit, exploit uh, the lowest standards of labor laws in order to get the cheapest labor. And if, if they can do it through human trafficking and slavery, that's what they'll choose to. Um, so we have to understand that all, all of these fights for uh, humanity um, and for dignity um, around the world are what affect us right here in our home communities too. Um, a very real example of this and of international solidarity happened during the Verizon strike a few years ago. And um, a, you know, kudos to CWA. There were a lot of unions that didn't say the word strike for a long time. Uh, CWA has never stopped. And um, so in the middle of this strike, when they were fighting to keep, <laughs> fighting to keep uh, jobs here uh, in the US, uh, there was a call center uh, for Verizon in the Philippines. And what, the, and what Verizon tried to do to break the strike was to shift a lot of that work over to the Philippines. And, and those call center workers in the Philippines said, no, we're not gonna be scabs. And so they refused to take on that work. But, but I think it's really important for us to understand what that means. Because in the Philippines, the government is doing what they call red tagging, union leaders and union activists which means, which is like a version of McCarthyism, except that what they're saying is the state police or any vigilante out there can, can go um, try, to, uh, try to slay a union leader. So they get death threats for that. But they stood up and said they weren't gonna take that work. And it was a key moment in winning that strike here in the United States and bringing call center jobs back here too in that contract. Um, so, they were willing to put everything on the line, their lives on the line, in order to stand in solidarity with us. And um, if we didn't understand this just based on the basic economics of how these jobs have been taken somewhere else and the recognition that, for example, we have to lift up the uh, labor movement in Mexico um, so that we can strengthen those labor provisions um, so that um, there, you know, it's not, our jobs are not undercut just with our, our, our Southern, uh, siblings. Um, we, we have to understand that we have to do that around the world. And, but, but here was an example, right? Smack dab in our face, not even asking for this support. Those workers just understanding solidarity and understanding what it means to stand up for each other. And they are being hunted and killed. And, um, we, we have to stand up. Uh, for them. And so Kwong was talking about this um, with his union, with the public sector workers too. Um, the, the workers in the Philippines who are trying to stand together um, are, being, are being hunted and killed. And, and the call is coming out from their own government. And so our government should be dealing with that and standing against that and taking a strong stand in every way that we can to call them out and to, and to find um, and and to find a refuge for those workers and, and safety uh, in their country and where they work. Yeah, no, that, that, that was when he was talking about that, the basically uh, red tagging and stuff. And, and then that, that came into mind, McCarthyism. And I tell people, I'm like, hey, take a chill pill, like stop calling people, put, 
that's just my opinion, putting puppet and all this stuff, just because you're questioning something, authority or the media or something. It's good to question things. Um, Absolutely. Because if they're first, they're coming for these type of people, and eventually they're going to come for labor people, organizers. That's what they did yeah. in the past. That's what they'll do now. But uh, I wanted to touch up on something that you brought up earlier when you said the UPS workers uh, of shaking Sean's hand and he felt empowered just that moment alone before the contract was even won. I remember when I was uh, helping to organize uh, an AV company here in San Diego. It's called Encore. Actually, my our tech guy here, Ed, if you want to just jump in the frame real quick, <laughs> he, he was one of my. He was my. I called them my general. They called them Theo, like like uncle. That's Ed right there, Theo. So um, in this art organizing campaign in the beginning parts of it, uh, we were doing videos. We were doing all kinds of things to motivate the workers. One of the workers, I remember, told me like, hey, man, I just want to thank you. Uh, before this campaign, I felt alone in what I'm doing here, how I'm thinking, how the company treats us. I feel like it's just me feeling these thoughts. But now this campaign has brought all of us together and we're fighting for something. Now I feel like I have a family. So yeah, no, I think like empowering workers really gives that kind of family or collective mindset. But um, but Mary, I want to bring you in and ask you this question because uh, like us, we're a little bit older now and uh, and we need somebody to pick up the torch eventually. So what advice would you give to young people who are interested in pursuing a career in labor advocacy or or leadership? I think <laughs> probably older than you. No, that's but, what I'm saying. Uh, but I, I, well, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> but uh, boy, um, go for it. You know, get out there, start. You know, where I started, just walking into a union office, and uh, I didn't know a lot about unions. Um, I didn't grow up in a labor household. I grew up in a very progressive household, um, but uh, just had moved to a new city and thought, I'm going to just go volunteer my time and see where they can use my skills. I didn't really even know what my skills were. And <laughs> uh, start, you know, start at the bottom, get involved where you can learn, see where your passion is. Um, I, I think uh, my passion really came to a head that the trip, Sarah, that we took to Washington when United was in the midst of um, terminate, attempting to terminate our pensions while we were in that long, really super long, drawn out bankruptcy and, you know, the entire union leadership. And I, I was uh, pretty new at that, at that level at the time, still learning quite a bit, um, descended upon Washington and, and, and surprised, well, I'm not sure we surprised him, but uh, we all ended up at uh, Senator Obama at the time and Senator Dermot Durbin held a weekly coffee and donuts with their constituents. And then here's the whole, you know, United AFA leadership um, pleading for help. And um, that trip, I think, was my first kind of, you know, I was a political science major, but I, I didn't learn any of that in college. I, I learned all that and I felt that sense of community and um, power that 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 uh, that you feel in a, a group who shares these uh, common values and and does this work together. That's the trip that really sparked my interest. So I, get out there, do see see where your passion is, and just um, you know volunteer your time and figure out um, where 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 you find the most joy. 
No, that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Like what we try to do here in San Diego is go to high schools and, and talk labor and talk. We my, my local, we go to high schools and we and specifically like theater programs and educate them on what labor is, that there's a union for your skill set that you all are working on right now. And because my, my girlfriend's a teacher uh, here in San Diego. And, and then she tells me how like Walmart and Amazon, they're all investing on school boards. And there's a reason for that. It's not because they care about education. I guess they do care about education, but not in the sense that we think they should care. They care about education and school boards because that's the like the kind of stuff the books are going to be made out of, right? They have decision-making power and they don't want to educate the kids on labor and organizing and all that good stuff. So that's what we do. We go to high schools and we try to educate these kids because that's the future that's they're going to jump into these walmart jobs amazon jobs where or in orientation they get an anti-union video propaganda video right off the bat so I well think- and i got a couple i got a couple specific things so they can look up you can google um labor spring 2024 get involved in more than 80 events at college campuses across the country this next year um, you can also just go out and join a picket line. You're going to learn a lot about unions just by being out there on the picket line and getting in the fight and feeling it yourself and learning more. Um, and you can also um, uh, uh, get some training. Go to go to a training to become a union organizer. We don't have enough union organizers. Um, we should be telling actually college counselors to um, tell people that this is a career path that they can have. We need more organizers than ever. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities for young people who want to get involved in labor. And in most cases, they're go- there's going to be a labor event happening right in your community. And I do want to give a shout out to uh, the, the professors at um, Georgetown University at Kalmanovitz Institute, uh, the Labor Institute at Georgetown, um, who have organized the Labor Spring. It happened in 2023. There was more interest for it than anybody would have ever expected. And I think 2024 is going to be huge and a great opportunity for people to jump in and get involved and get trained and uh, get educated on labor history, too. Um, so those are a couple specific ways to get involved. In California, we have something similar. We have a, a labor summer, but it's like an internship that yeah. can join. Um, and we have uh, we place them at different unions. So we're always looking for fellows, like labor fellows from all walks, all students from all walks of life, but also different hosts. So you know, Mary, if we can uh, get uh, AFA to be a host and and yeah. get a, you, you can have a, a labor fellow who will learn the ropes from you, but also help support the campaigns that are you all are organizing locally so just want to yeah, do a little plug it. it's uh, sponsored by the the labor centers uh the uc labor centers across the state of california so um we had three primary centers but uh we were able to secure labor was able to secure funding to establish six new labor centers on uc campuses to basically grow awesome. our movement to try <laughs> not that they would say indoctrinate but actually educate folks on the history of the labor movement and what the labor movement, you know, is doing today and how people can get involved. So that's all, that's also another um, opportunity. Um, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of red here, huh? I like it. Um, quick question. So uh, do you all right now, I think we sit at like a 11, 12% density across the US between private sector and the public sector and union density. Do you all think we can get back to like the 30 percentile that we were in the 50s and 60s? And if you do think, how do how, how are we going to get end up there? How do we get there? 
So first of all, I, I don't think um, that it's just 6% in the private sector, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, where we need to take on the corporations with all the money. Um, but I don't think it's, um, do we get back there? We have to get back there. So we don't have a choice. We have to do this. Um, but it should be easy. Uh, there's more than 70% of the public who support unions. If there were that kind of support for a particular product, you better believe that a corporation is going to figure out how to get it into the hands of consumers. Um, so we we should be able to do this. Um, I, I don't think that we're going to do it just with uh, the labor unions that are organizing today. Uh, we're going to have to support organizing in every way that we can. I'm working on uh, putting together uh, a project called Union Now, that would support workers anywhere who can't find uh, a union campaign that's happening to still be able to organize their workplace and and get to a first contract. Um, And so if people believe in uh, if people believe in democracy and a free society, this is something that they need to give to. We don't we we need specifically to grow unions because there are workers who are walking out of work with demands and making a change in their workplace. But if you don't lock that in with a union contract and that legal standing as a union, that can just wash away tomorrow. Um, so we have to have uh, the definitive structure of unions. And, and, and I'll say it's not easy today. The, the laws are stacked against us. We need to fight for the PRO Act, sure, and the provisions of the PRO Act, which essentially would repeal Taft-Hartley, which was intended to destroy our unions across the country and has been very effective in doing so. It's very hard to hold management accountable uh, for any actions that they take. For example, the mine workers were out on strike for two years in a ULP strike against Warrior Met in Alabama. Um, and, the, and the mine companies basically waited them out and, um, and got replacement workers with the help of the state government. That, go- that governor uh, used those taxpayer dollars in Alabama to use the state troopers to escort workers, uh, replacement workers, scabs from outside of um, the state to come in and work in those mines and try to break the strike and break the union. Um, and then they ran uh, a desert campaign, which they were unsuccessful in. Mine workers beat them on that. But two years later, they got a determination from the NLRB um, that the company had broken the law. There was no accountability there. Two years later, there's no restoring people's lives. We don't have labor laws that are set up to help people organize. But what people have to understand is that those labor laws only went into place because workers joined together with no protections, with no laws in place. We did it before. We're going to have to do it again. It's going to take strikes for recognition. It's going to take building power. It's going to take what we see the Starbucks workers doing. Um, and inspiring an entire nation, we have to help people understand how to build worker power and how to stand up and build our unions, lock those in and um, and get to those first contracts. And we have to support each other in that. Every labor fight is our fight. Right. No, I agree. I think so, too. Um, social media. I know I know you're big on social media. I'm trying to be. Um, I'm trying to share everything on social media, retweeting everything. Uh, you mentioned 70 percent. Uh, approval rating across the board, but it's like 88% with Gen Z. Yeah. And and Gen Z is on TikTok and Twitter <laughs> and they're not on Facebook anymore. I am, but they're not on Facebook anymore. So do you think like labor should take on 
a bigger role in social media. Uh, this question is to both of you all. Like, should we invest more in social media, even jump into the realm of TikTok? Because these TikTok videos, they go viral and they go viral fast and people get their news on TikTok. Why not labor be in that sphere? Yeah, well, I mean, we've got to be. So we have to be, we have to be everywhere. Um, and I'll tell you what, um, I am not the person to lead the TikTok revolution, but we need people who are dedicated. I'm like, okay, I'm in my fifties now. Like I'm, I, 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 uh, I'm not going to be the one who's on the leading edge of technology, but supporting it and making sure that we have people in our unions who understand these platforms and are able to get on that and be creative and help it. Oh my God. Union members are the most creative people in the world. And I have been in a lot of boardrooms. I want to promise you, they do not have the corner markets on smarts. All we have to do is give space for people in our unions to be creative and to bring their ideas forward and get engaged in unions and understand that we're not irrelevant. We're the main event. Um, this is, you know, we, we can't be complacent. We have to go where we're uncomfortable to go. We can't believe that we're going to do everything on TikTok or any other social media platform, but we have to be there. We have to be everywhere. We have to be able to reach people in any way that we can. And uh, so absolutely, we, we've got to invest in that. We have to have people who know how to use it um, and can take members' ideas and amplify that. And I bet you there's people right within our ranks who are using it right now, who are experts in it, just because they like using it in their own personal lives. Let's bring that to the union and make it work. And Mary brought this up before, you know, you don't even necessarily know what skills you have until you get engaged in the union. And then all of a sudden you discover, wow, I'm, I'm actually quite proficient in all these things that can help my union. Um, and, and that is also a benefit of getting engaged in your union too. You never know how you're going to be able to contribute. Um, but, um, there are people within all of our ranks who can do this right now and we've got to do it. We've got to make the space for it. Definitely. Uh, okay. One last question. Cause I think we're running out of, out of time. So, or did you have one? Uh, I have one is like, Sarah will shut I up. Have, like I have a billion questions. <laughs> What's that? I always have a billion. Oh, questions. okay. Well, I like to end this, uh, this, I like to end these little episodes with well, final thoughts kind of deal. But with this question, like what, cause solidarity is like our theme of this podcast and what, what does solidarity mean to, to you all? If you can just answer that, like, I, I know, like we sit, we throw that term around and I hashtag the hell out of it all the time when I make my tweets. But uh, what does solidarity mean? What does it look like to, to, to you guys? Go ahead, Mary. <laughs> power. <laughs> it looks like a whole lot of power to me. Um, power, community, um, lifting each other up, um, all the things, right, Sarah? <laughs> um, I mean, so, solidarity is where it starts and ends. Um, you have to, you have to have strategy and you have to have tactics that meet the strategy, but you don't have anything if you don't have solidarity and solidarity, um, is what it looks like when it's easy looking out for each other. Like the, uh, flight attendant who wrote me that $800 check in my first days. Um, but it's, it's also um, checking in on someone who's had an accident at work or had uh, death in the family or um, it's being in community. It's, it's, you know, I was raised on potlucks in, in my small town, uh, whether it was the church or the choir or the basketball team or whatever it was, um, it was always a potluck. And you, you didn't assign anything to anybody. Everybody brought what they could bring, their best dish, and we all ate like kings. And um, so I often say that solidarity is a force stronger than gravity. 
it lifts us up and we got to live that in our hearts it's it's love if you um if you worship um and you know that um uh the teachings of almost any religion is based on love um that's what solidarity is and uh if you just simply believe that um your religion is uh lifting up each other and humanity that's what solidarity is um and it has to live in our hearts and the way that we go through our daily lives and the way that we're willing to fight for each other mother jones said um you will fight and lose fight and win but you must fight and if you fight with solidarity you're 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 going to win even if you don't win that particular battle you're going to be stronger for the next battle and you're going to win boom well there you have it cool new commercial all right oh my goodness <laughs> um you both have been amazing thank you so much for taking the time to um speak with us and share your stories and share the work that you all are doing and you know your vision for what a, a labor movement what our labor movement should look like um it's you know this leadership like gives me hope um <laughs> especially when it's run by women <laughs> um just saying sorry let's be clear about that women join <laughs> unions run unions we need your creativity your ingenuity your leadership your ability um to make peace and um women are well trained for this moment and we absolutely need women in leadership. There's no way forward without it. A hundred percent. And we have some extraordinary women leaders here. <laughs> women in one. And dead. Women in one. And the other. That's shit. a ticket sign I'll carry. Oh. Yeah. You hear that? You heard it first. You heard it first, Union or Bust. Uh, cool. Well, there goes another episode of Union or Bust. Thank you all for watching. And uh, we'll end it there, Ed. Uh, um, that's awesome. Oh, my God. Thank you. Yeah. That was just like incredible. I feel like I'm going to be on cloud 11,000 for like a billion years. <laughs>